there, everybody. You are listening to This Show is So Gay. I'm your host, Ken Schneck. This is episode number 402. As always, you can get in touch with us by dropping us a line. Send an email on over to ken at thisshowissogay.com. Stroll on over to thisshowissogay.com to learn all about the fun things happening with our little gay radio show that could. You can follow us on Twitter. The handle is thisshowissogay. And of course, go on over to that Facebook. Like us there, because we sure as heck like you. We have a jam-packed show for you this week with a couple of amazing guests. Let me introduce the first one to you. The Honorable Rufus Gifford served as the United States Ambassador to the Kingdom of Denmark from 2013 to 2017. His career started in Hollywood and then transitioned into various forms of financial management roles for Democratic candidates, including John Kerry's campaign, as well as serving as the finance director for Barack Obama's presidential re-election campaign in 2012. His life as the ambassador was captured on the small screen in the ridiculously entertaining and award-winning reality show, I Am the Ambassador. Just a few months back, he was awarded the Grand Cross of the Order of Dannenbrog, and I'm sure I mangled that, by the Queen of Denmark, a mark of true chivalry, recognizing his service to the kingdom. But right this second, he is here with us. Ambassador, welcome to the show with So Gay. Thank you, Ken. In fact, it's great to be here. I have to ask you the question that I think a lot of people have in their minds. How well do I know you having watched every episode of I Am the Ambassador? <laughs> well, first of all, that's so kind. Thank you. It's, it's truly the most unexpected journey uh, ever, This the whole story behind the TV show. Uh, but the truth is this, is that actually the, the first note that we had for the producers when they approached us uh, about the show is that um, all I wanted it to be was honest. Uh, my goal here was to tear down the walls uh, of this kind of amazing life and work uh, that we were doing every single day. And I felt like people had a really, really kind of naive and inaccurate definition of what the work was all about and, and, and whatnot. So uh, we tried to just make it as honest a portrayal of uh, life and work as possible. So, I mean, it's funny. I think people... People, my friends get asked um, by their friends, you know, what's he like? Is he like how they, uh, how he comes across on TV? So I like to believe that actually I'm pretty much exactly in person and pretty much exactly what you see on the show. That makes me feel better. I woke up this morning <laughs> and thought, I totally know him. No, wait, I saw that on Netflix. That's well, a different thing. You know, it's funny that actually in, in Denmark, less so, of course, in the U.S., because of course the show's been much widely, more widely watched in Denmark. People do come up to me on the street and have, because my family and Steven and my dog are all characters, they all, you know, they feel like they know you and they feel like they, they ask you questions about your dog and stuff. And I have to say that that, that is not a reality that I ever expected um, as ambassador. You left out your dad, who, by the way, I love. I <laughs> love your dad. At one point in the filming, he actually said to you, you're on film. You have to finish your sentences. And I'm like, yeah, that's totally what your dad would say. <laughs> He's always my dad. Like, yeah, my, yeah, he's he's amazing. I think uh, he's a hysterical guy and uh, been truly my one. I think my biggest mentor in the world. Um, so yeah, he's 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 as good as they get. Well, let's do a little Rufus Gifford. This is your life, Manchester sure. by the Sea. Not just a horribly depressing movie, but also where you grew up. 
That is correct. And in fact, the movie, uh, the movie is a wonderful film, amazing, but uh, not necessarily all that reflective of my childhood. Uh, but but in a wonderful, beautiful, uh, but wonderful, beautiful place to grow up. Uh, it looks lovely there. It looks lovely there. You, you spent a few years in Hollywood, and, and then you made the transition to politics. And as I was thinking about this, I thought, well, those are either polar opposites or they're hanging out in the same spectrum, which <laughs> it, or maybe something in the middle. But I kind of feel like there's something happening there. You know what? It's funny. It's people ask me that a lot when I when I switch from from Hollywood to politics people say you know gosh that's such a dramatic career move and in some ways listen i mean in some ways they in some ways they are obviously the day-to-day work is dramatically different but in some ways they really are not i mean it's because uh, what what sort of dictates uh, a certain degree of success when when it comes to both politics and the entertainment industry and it's really about relationships it's about building human relationships and and also kind of sales to a certain extent and pr and telling a story i mean all of those things that are associated with Hollywood are actually associated with politics as well. So in some ways, the skill set that I had, and frankly, I consider myself a, an, an abysmal failure in, the, in Hollywood. I, uh, people talk about my Hollywood career. I, I really, uh, it, it wasn't a particularly successful chapter of my life at all. Uh, but I do believe that this, a skill set that might make you successful in the entertainment industry could, in a strange way, carry over to politics as well. Um, obviously, my political career is where I found um, my, my professional passion, uh, a professional passion that I did not find at all in the entertainment industry. And actually, I left the entertainment industry because I just was not really, I frankly was just not inspired by the work that I was doing. And in politics, I finally found that, you know, that kind of amazing passion that I think we all feel, the, that moment where you wake up and, and have a reason to get out of bed in the morning um, and an art inspired to get out of bed in the morning. So that's, uh, that's what politics was for me. Well, speaking of inspiration, talk to our listeners about that fateful moment when Barack Obama walked into the room. <laughs> yes, it was. Uh, oh, gosh, you know, it was right after New Year's of 2007. And um, I had just helped, uh, had done a lot, did a lot of work to help Democrats take back the House and Senate in 2000, in the 2006 elections. And I was in D.C. to paint you a picture. This is when Nancy Pelosi was first sworn in as Speaker of the House, the first female Speaker, and Dem- Democrats were taking back over the Senate. And at that time, I was trying to decide uh, who I was going to support for president and who I was going to work for. And because of the work I had done, I had been approached by several of the candidates. Um, and I had just come from an interview with Hillary's people um, offering me a job to run California uh, for, for her presidential campaign. And uh, I was at a party, uh, a cocktail party at the Senate, uh, Senate office building hosted by Ted Kennedy, and um, who was my home state senator and uh, a guy who was uh, certainly a, a, you know, a huge, huge political hero of mine. And in that room, in that party, he walked uh, Barack Obama. And he was escorted by, uh, he was escorting Ethel Kennedy, oh, wow. Bobby's widow, of course. Yeah. And um, it's just one of those moments where, I don't know, everything just seems to make sense. And I walked over and had a very brief conversation uh, with then-Senator Obama, who there was a lot of speculation that he was going to run for president, but no announcement. And um, I don't, you know, I don't remember what was said. I don't know. I don't remember exactly what, uh, uh, what what we talked about, and I don't remember how long the conversation was. But I do remember in that moment, uh, I said, "Look, I, I'm going to turn down Hillary, and um, this is the guy I want to work for." This after after eight years of George W. Bush, this is the guy that uh, I want to throw all my support behind. And you know, I believe that this country, I believe the United States of America, can 
elect a black guy with the middle name Hussein. I think we can do it, and I want to prove to the world that we can. And so I, you know, my parents thought I was crazy uh, when the Clinton people uh, heard that I was going to turn them down and wait for Obama. They were not happy. But, you know, it's uh, so much of this, so much of life, so much of your career does involve following your heart and, and figuring out not just following what people think you should do. And, and obviously, you know, I made a maybe a risky decision at that time, but it was the right one and obviously ended up being the right one historically as well. Yeah. In my head, when you met him, the strings swelled and conversation ceased. I have it all scored, Rufus. It's all set. In the movie, it definitely would be. I'm sure I, all, I'm sure I was a sweaty fool who, didn't string a sentence, who couldn't string a sentence together, who was, who was a bit starstruck. I, mean, I was a political nerd at the time, so the idea that, a, that senators and, you know, and, and, me, and political media personalities were walking into the room was, was kind of like, for me, going to the Oscars. I was at Ted Kennedy's Senate office, uh, office uh, and so that, to me, was much more exciting than anything I had ever done in Hollywood. <laughs> I love that you said in the movie it would be as if it's not in the movie it will be. It's going to happen. It'll totally, <laughs> yeah, right. it'll totally happen. I, I doubt it. I doubt it. Well, yeah. Let's talk about your time as sure. the United States ambassador to the Kingdom of Denmark. Before we even get into that, you realize that that sentence alone is the most incredible sentence. <laughs> I totally agree, by the way. And actually, as you say it, I get goosebumps even to this day. And I... When I was asked to do it, uh, you know, still probably the biggest honor of my life. Um, I felt like I was in over my head. I wasn't sure I knew how to do the job, uh, but um, you know, I was determined to figure out how to do it and how to how to how to do it to the, the best of my abilities. So much of that work was this idea of diplomacy, right? And I I have to tell you, just as a viewer, I had such anxiety just experiencing that through the screen, just (laughs) the level of being on, Um, right, and networking and and talking to people and schmoozing. How do you maintain that? Well, it's it's mostly about a love for what you do. Yeah. Um, I think that's what it's all about. And so, yeah, sure. Are you exhausted? I mean, this is though. It's one of the things I think is probably the best, biggest misconceptions of this kind of work, which is, you know, the, the, I, I joke that people sort of have this perception that we play a lot of golf and go to a lot of cocktail parties, and uh, and that's pretty much it, and hang out with the queen, right? Uh, but actually, the vast majority of your days start early in the morning, and they go very, very late at night, and uh, with, you know, a million, uh, several speeches every single day, a million handshakes and photos, and all those kinds of things, all of which are part of the job, but, I mean, the way you have to look at it, the way it doesn't become exhausting, as far as I'm concerned, is just... I mean, look at it, looking at it as a gift and such a privilege. And I know that sounds almost trite, um, but it just was. For me to be able to be, um, first of all, an openly gay man, um, and we know that that hasn't been possible for very long, representing a guy, a president who um, I believe to be one of the best presidents in our country's history uh, in the capital of a just a phenomenal country. I, I mean, it's just such a privilege. And so I just tried to appreciate it every day. And I think that gave me the energy um, and the will to just always, uh, you know, if you're tired, eh, you'll wait till Sunday and hopefully get a few hours off. Yeah, I had to take a break between episodes, so I I can't even believe that. You know, at one point you referenced the importance of distinguishing between what was an initiative from President Obama and what was an initiative from the gay ambassador to the Kingdom of Denmark. Talk to me about walking that line. 
Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think, first of all, the, the most important thing that you can, it, it, this goes back to my whole diplomatic philosophy, generally speaking, and maybe political philosophy more broadly. I mean, the first, first and foremost, you're not going to do anything to, um, you're not going to do anything to um, conflict with or contradict anything that the Obama administration says or does. That, that right. would be the wrong thing to do as a diplomat. That being said, they send real human beings to partner capitals around the globe to do this work. So in my mind, you have to answer questions like a human being. You right. have to answer questions you, or you have to engage with people like a human being. And I think what is so frustrating when I look at what so many in particular politicians do, but so many people in power around the globe, is that they essentially stick to the script. They never get outside of their comfort zone. They never show a degree of humility. They never show a degree of sort of hum uh, humanity associated with these jobs. Um, and that's what I tried to do as much as possible, show a sense of vulnerability. Talk about the United States in a way that wasn't just kind of what Europeans constantly make fun of us for, the, the sort of uh, constant waving the flag, hyper-patriotic, pounding the chest. Because I believe that the quintessential American patriotism is actually to, con to, to question the country from time to time as yeah. well. And so I tried to kind of add that, that, which is, I think, such a part of the American experience, um, to my ambassadorship. And, it, and I think it was just very well received because they don't hear that from Americans very often. Yeah. So you may say, and, and also, I mean, you asked the sort of what is my, me versus Obama. I mean, the truth of the matter is I was taking Obama's lead on this. I mean, you know, I mean, he, he talked very, very openly and, free, and freely about various chapters of America, in American history and some that were recent history. Um, that were troubling, and to really add that personal context. And I think that's when he was could be sort of, at least as a messenger, so incredibly effective. And so I tried to do that as well, and add my own my own story to that mix. I I think um, you know when I, when I was going out, and I mentioned I didn't really know I didn't know how to be a diplomat. I was a 38 year old political operative, and when they asked me to do this, and I read everything I possibly could about Denmark and diplomacy, and but the best advice uh, I was given was really by the president himself. And uh, I was backstage at an event in Dallas in April of 13. So during kind of this intense vetting and studying time, and um, he gave me, you know, he gave me a hug. I think it was the first time I had seen him since the nomination was kind of official. Mm -hmm. And um, he said to me, you know, I, he said to me, you know, gave me a hug, told me he was proud of me and just said, you know, go be you and go talk about the country that, uh, that you love. Um, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but that was the that was a, that was the sentiment, and so that's what I tried to do. So I tried to make it my own, but follow his lead, which is I think the most effective that we can be. Yeah. Again, listeners, we are here with the Honorable Rufus Gifford, who served as the United States Ambassador to the Kingdom of Denmark. You know, one of your passions that, that came through, uh, that, that I've seen online and certainly on the TV show, is a real passion for environmental work and bringing attention to, holy crap, we have a lot of work to do to save this planet. <laughs> Ain't that the truth. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, without a doubt, I mean, I think that, and this is something where, one, it was, it was connected to the work the Obama administration was doing. Two, it was so incredibly connected to Denmark. I mean, this right. is a, this is a country that was green before green was kind of a trend um, in the rest of the world. I mean, this is a country that in response to the oil crisis in the late 70s invested in this crazy concept of wind energy. 
and you could sort of see the rest of the world pat the sweet little Scandinavians on the head and say, oh yeah, you go try to light your light your homes up with the with the, with wind. We're going to drill for oil and gas. Uh, and, and look who's winning now. I mean, look, all, all we're doing is tripling year after year our wind energy production in the United States. So what I wanted to try to do is talk about that journey and talk about the political leadership that it takes still to this day to, inve- to invest in these really transformational technologies. Right. Um, and, uh, and also, and do something else in, in the process, which was talk about how uh, you know, I mean, I actually can't. I'm I'm now going back six months in the prior administration, but talking about how both politically and with public opinion, Americans are really coming along on this issue, and in some in- instances are really leading. I think the Obama administration really led, and I also think if you look at what so many cities and states are doing around the country, they're really leading on the green agenda, and the American and American corporations are leading on the green agenda. And we have a terrible brand on this around the world, but I also think we should get credit for the evolution um, as well, because look, uh, we need to be part of the solution, and I think that we we have we are starting to be part of the solution. Um, again, uh, this administration, I, I think, will just. Uh, continue to become part will be continue to become part of the problem, um, but uh, you know I, I I like to believe that public opinion is certainly siding at this point uh, with with solutions as opposed to the problems. So much work to do. All right, I I almost don't even want to talk about this next topic, but I suppose we have to hit on the part where you're transitioning out of the role, right? So yeah. at some point, by the way, my crack research team is telling me there is not a current ambassador. Is that true? That is true. Yes, it was probably shouldn't surprise anybody that. Uh, well, frankly, even with any administration, it does take some time to get ambassadors uh, confirmed. I think the earliest we would expect an ambassador sometime in August. Uh, but uh, it, we, it, it shouldn't surprise anyone that the Trump administration is moving very, 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 very slowly and and, and filling many, many government. Uh, uh, government slots. So I, I don't know when my successor will get there. They uh, couldn't let you stay in the house until then. I, I would say that that was a mutual decision. Okay. He, didn't want, he didn't want me. I didn't want to. I would. I loved every moment of the job, but I do not know how to do that job with this president. So I would imagine that now you are on this journey of okay. So what is my voice in everything that's going on right now? Yeah. Talk to us about that exploration. Yeah. Let's see. On the night, it was uh, very very late on November eighth, election night, and I turned to my husband and just said. Uh, you know, I think we should stay in Europe. Uh, we were in, you know, we were in tears. Uh, I had just, just early, a few hours earlier, I texted my mom and my sisters. I'm the, I have six nieces, and I, I said, you know, tomorrow morning you're going to be able to wake up and look in the faces of your daughters and tell them that they could be, because we, that they could do anything in this world, including right. become president of the United States, because uh, we just elected the first female president, and. Um, you know, obviously everything changed uh, with with our election, and I I think that if Hillary had won, I like so many others other people had become a bit complacent that you know we had made this significant transformation on things like uh, like gay rights, like healthcare, right. you know, LGBT rights more broadly, of course, and human rights more broadly. That we have we have finally sort of turned the corner, and the United States can you can make the argument that we're leading on LGBT rights, on on, on climate change, on so many different things. Um, but now, in that moment, everything felt at risk. So that 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 initial instinct of shouldn't we just stay in Europe quickly, quickly subsided, and I couldn't, I could, I can't for the life of me 
convince myself to just go get a good job and make a bunch of money and, and grow roots like I have yet to I, you know, grow, buy a house and, and live in the suburbs. Right. I feel like the fight isn't over. I feel like this is the worst time to hang up my political hat um, and, and, and do something different. In fact, I, I, I just I, I, I feel a responsibility to, to continue to fight the fight. Um, so that that evolution is ongoing. I have wor- I worked for Obama for exactly ten years. So from that January January uh, 07 meeting that we talked about before until January twentieth of seventeen, and I'm tired and I'm yeah. a little bit worn out. So I'm going to take a little time to figure it out. But I, I can tell you uh, whether that is running for office, and I think from pretty seriously about running for office, or doing something connected uh, with politics will be, I believe, the short-term professional answer for me. Um, What that is, I'm not sure specifically yet, but hopefully I will in the next couple of months. Next couple of months. We still have six or seven minutes left of this interview. If you could really (laughs) hammer that down, that'd be great. You know, at at one point, you actually were speaking about race, and as a a professor who teaches mostly about race, I I so appreciated uh, you referencing, you know, that there is still so much hatred and sadness and anger on both sides. And as I started looking at that sentence and thinking about that sentence and processing that sentence, obviously that describes everything that's going on right now politically and i'm not putting the pressure on you to have the answer to that but but get us started in so how do we start addressing the hatred sadness and anger on both sides yeah i was just i was looking at a poll just just that released today a, a quinnipiac poll that said and trump's approval numbers are terrible but what's more interesting about it is is the strong the strong feelings that he elicits so 51 percent uh, in this one poll, strongly disapprove of the uh, Trump administration. I think 25% strongly approve, and then smaller numbers kind of approve or disapprove. So I think when I, when I say that, because of just clearly the passion that now exists in American politics and the complete divide um, that I think we feel, and certainly in my social uh, interaction or professional interaction, I, I think we know who, who, where the vast majority of the people fall uh, in the spectrum there. Um, but I do think that this is so, what, what drives me crazy, because I'm going around and doing a lot of talks and stuff lately, uh, what drives me crazy now is this, there, there, we can't just sit around and bitch to our friends. Right. We can't just sit around and speak to our, these conferences that are that all over the country right now and complain about Trump and wait for 2020. That is the opposite of what we should be doing. I think we need to start, and, and this is overused, of course, that we need to start healing. But how do you heal? And my answer to this is it's really based on a word that I think is, and I'll actually can bring this back to some of the work that we did as ambassador, and that, and that is about trust. Yeah. So there has been an enormous, enormous erosion of trust between the establishment and the people. And this is, of course, overly reported, um, and people have talked about this a lot. But to build that trust back is absolutely critical. And it's just how do you do it? And it just it's not that hard in my mind. This is about listening. This is about understanding. And real people can do this stuff. And then, of course, follow through. Yeah. But I, I just, uh, so just to give you a sense, and we, going back to the TV show and all the rest of this, one of the reasons why we wanted to do this TV show, one of the reasons we wanted to pursue this incredibly aggressive and risky and first ever kind of um, open diplomacy with this documentary series about my, about my life and our work was because I felt like trust even had been eroded 
between the Danish public and kind of this entire institution of diplomacy. And I think this is true around the globe. So we were kind of this, and this is, and I'll just to paint you a picture of when we are talking about. It. This is the height of the Snowden era. Yeah. So, so we are talking about where the United States government, in particular, people you know who work inside embassies, uh, the brand of the United States government is that we're just sort of spying across the board, and so that we are essentially up to the, our the work that we do is far more nefarious, is far more negative than it is positive. So trust was starting to be eroded. Uh, and there was a ton of uh, sort of breakdown of trust as a as a hangover from the Bush years. Stuff like the Kyoto Agreement and Abu Ghraib and all this stuff were still things that da- the Danes would talk to me about constantly when I was out there, and, and LGBT rights and others. So I really felt we had to build trust back. And how do we do that? And I believe I really believe this, and I believe that we can do the same thing domestically. You build you build trust back. Um, by human, by showing the human side of the work, right. you build trust back by showing the the people, the real people, who they are, um, and the sincerity with which they go about their daily lives. And so that's what we tried to do, and it was relatively simple. It took a lot of took a lot of effort on the sort of part of me and the embassy staff and all the rest, but we tried to. We tried to bring both sides together. We tried to explain to the Danish public the men and women um, that went to the embassy every single day and did this work that hopefully benefited both societies, both Danish and American societies. And what was so awesome about that, and this is a country of 5.7 million people, right. is that we were successful and that you know, we were able to establish trust between the, the, the embassy and Danish society that had never existed before, and in the process bringing people in. So bringing people who had never cared about diplomacy into, into the fold. And that was just so exciting as someone who's so completely passionate about, uh, about participation and about fighting concepts like apathy and cynicism. Um, it was so exciting to see. Um, and I think we need to do that same kind of thing. Now, I know that this is, I can't, I'm not going to say that w- what I did in Denmark will work for the larger United States. Of course it can't. But I think the concepts are the same. The concepts of just trying to heal and build trust back are really where we have to start. And, and that takes, you know, getting outside of your comfort zone, listening and understanding, and maybe, you know, uh, making yourself vulnerable from time to time. And, and when I say that, I mean the people in power. And that's everything from business leaders and politicians uh, and, and anyone else, honestly. Yeah. This is one less class I have to teach now. I could just press play during one of my classes. And this is, this is great. I should give you an honorarium. But, oh, you know. thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, the Honorable Rufus Gifford served as the United States Ambassador to the Kingdom of Denmark from 2013 to 2017. If you are not following him on social media, you are missing out on some passion. You are missing out on some insight. You are missing out on some energy. Let, let me tell you this, sir. When I put up on social media that, that you were going to be on the show, of course, tons of people wrote and said, I love that guy, and he's got so much energy, and he interacts with people, and you're so authentic, and, and all of that is 100% true. I will just tell you personally, for me, you know, we are yeah. of the same age. The thing that inspires me so much about the way that you put your voice out there into the world is that you also openly say, there's so much more I want to do. And it exists yeah. as an exhortation to the rest of us to say, that's right, there's so much more that we all can be doing, and we got to get out there and do it. And, and it's something that I take to heart and really help me along, and I appreciate it, sir. 
Well, that's so that's so sweet of you to say. Thank you, Ken. I I I believe this, and I will say this that I'm, I'm an eternal optimist, and and I believe that my optimism has been very very tested uh, since November eighth, and there have been times where you know I've been as down uh, as, as any chapter in my life, honestly. But I still feel I still feel like for all of the challenges that exist in both our society and around the globe, that they are solvable. And when I see when I see the passion that exists in society today, I'm only more inspired and I'm only more fired up. And and I see that everywhere I go. So um and it does make me want to do exactly what you just said. It just makes me want to do more and more and more and more. And what's cool is that I'm not alone. And I no. I know that when I, I, I people want to they just want the, the only thing, and this is our biggest challenge right now, is that people don't know what to do or how to do it. Um, they want to get involved. They want to help out. And regardless of their politics or how they feel, they feel, I think that there's this a heightened desire for civic activism and giving back and social action. And I think that is, if we can take any positives from the Trump election, as far as I'm concerned, that is the biggest one, that the idea that maybe that this awakened people to care more, to get involved, to volunteer, to be frankly more civil and decent to their, to their fellow citizens. Um, I hope so. And a lot of people might call me naive, and a lot of people might say I, I view the world too much with rose-colored glasses or glass half full or whatever, but I do think you know, we live in a society where hope is what drives us. As Americans, hope is what drives us. And I will continue... Um, to find that hope, even if it, uh, even if it's hard, because uh, I think it's what it's it's what we need, especially in times of challenge. Well, Rufus Gifford, I have said this to every guest over the past nine years, but never has it felt more important than right now. Please keep doing what you're doing. Oh, thank you, sir. I appreciate that so much. I do, and I will. You can count. On, you can count on me, and uh, I, I, I promise you that. folks and we are back with another incredible guest let me introduce her to you sarah prager is a writer an advocate a techie an activist an innovator and so much more in 2013 sarah created quist a free mobile app that brings lgbtq and hiv history to life with a following of tens of thousands of folks from over 100 countries sarah's writing has been published in the advocate the huffington post q 
QED, a journal in GLBTQ worldmaking. It gets Better Projects blog and various other newspapers, magazines, blogs. Go Magazine named Sarah one of their 13 red-hot entrepreneurs. In 2014, she worked with Apple and Google to make their tech policies more inclusive of bisexual terms. She was also invited to the White House to contribute on LGBTQ tech issues that year. Her first book is called Queer There and Everywhere, 23 People Who Changed the World. It will be published by HarperCollins on May 23rd, just a few days away. Let's talk all about it. Sarah, welcome to the show is so gay. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. And I should say welcome back. It's been a year and a half since we've had you on the show. Look how much you've done in that year and a half. A lot has changed. I couldn't tell you then, but the book deal had just come in around when I did the show last time. I don't appreciate you keeping secrets from me, Sarah. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Okay. Okay. We will talk all about it. First, let's let's go back and talk about Quist. How's Quist doing? Quist is doing great. Quist is going strong. I had to take some time off for writing the book, but thankfully we have an awesome team of volunteers that keeps our social media and the app going. Yeah, we are now, we're available on Windows now in addition to iOS and Android uh, phones and tablets. Look at that. Tell me what kind of feedback you, you've received. You know, when we when we first chatted, it had been out for, for some time, but now it's been out for quite a number of years. What stands out to you as, as the feedback of why this app is so important? This one college student emailed me, and I've gotten a, a few messages like this over the years about Quist. This is the most recent, and stuck with me the most that this person went and saw and looked in Quist and they found a gender nonconforming person in there. And um, it was someone who was elected to political office in Italy or somewhere else in Europe. And they said they had never thought that could be an option for their life and that they had never heard of a non-binary person achieving anything like that. They'd never heard of this person. And when they found that person's election in Quist, it changed what they thought they might be able to do with their life. And I think role models like that are are so important. And, you know, our history has a lot of tragedy in it, but there's so much hope as well and so much innovation and just inspiration, incredible things that have happened. And it's so powerful when we can find out what we're, what we're capable of in our community ourselves, what, what we can achieve just like our ancestors, really. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. When we last chatted, I don't know if you know this, it was a whole different president of the United States. Yeah. I heard something about that. Yeah. Yeah. It was in one of the local newspapers. But that puts a different light on highlighting all of this history, does it not? It definitely does. Things change so fast for our community around the world with, you know, one election, one law. These things make a really big difference. And um, I know when there's a mention of Hillary Clinton in my book, actually, she attended the funeral of one of the, um, the people in recent history. Um, and she's mentioned that I remember writing it and being like, oh, it's going to be cool that, 
you know, people will know Hillary Clinton when I write this. And then going back through the edits months later was like, oh, people will probably still know who she is, but it's not the same. Sarah, Um, that was quite possibly the most depressing story you ever could have told on the show. (laughs) Well, (laughs) no, actually, the saddest time during writing, well, no, I won't. No, it's too depressing. (laughs) It just makes learning our history all that more important now because we've made it through worse than this administration. And we have found ways to survive and thrive through through worse. And I take the, the hope and knowledge that that we can make it from knowing that we've made it through before. And I think that can help in troubled times like these. Yeah. See, you ended with some optimism there. That was a good thing. That was an absolute good thing. How do we keep Quist going? Are there ways that we can support it other than everybody downloading it? Because everyone should be downloading it. Q-U-I-S-T. You get your daily dose of history. It's so much fun, by the way, Sarah, seeing people on Facebook cutting and pasting and saying, this is what I learned today. I'm like, oh, yeah, Sarah, put that together. That's awesome. Yeah. um, Yes, we actually need a lot of help, um, and there's a really easy way to do it. We have a Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. If, if you go there um, or if you find it through our website, quistapp.com, you're able to make an automatic monthly donation of $1 or more, and you get little prizes based on if you give $1, $5, or something like that. And those monthly donations are what sustain us because we have monthly hosting costs for the app and the website. We have other monthly costs that right now we're able to cover through those donations. And the number of people giving there is directly proportionate to the amount of impact that we're able to have if, if we can count on more monthly donors, then we can do more on a monthly basis. And so, yeah, we're, if you go to quistapp.com, there's a, also a list of um, our wish list of books that you can donate or ways to make a one-time donation or ways to get involved as a volunteer. Love it. Love it. Everybody should get involved there. Again, listeners, we are here with Sarah Prager, advocate, techie. By the way, is it okay that I call you techie? I feel that you are one. Yes, it is. I am involved in the tech world for sure, but I didn't code the app myself. I did everything else like project manager and the history and design, but I have to. I had to pay real techies to actually make it. <laughs> yeah, I'm still going to call you that. Sarah Prager, advocate, techie, <laughs> activist, innovator. But let's talk about writer and author. In just a few days, your first book, Queer There and Everywhere, 23 People Who Changed the World, will be launching. How excited are you? The most excited ever. <laughs> well, actually, also since we spoke, I had a baby. There's that. Um, so that was pretty exciting. I bet. But um, this is my other baby, and I can't believe it's finally time for it to come out into the world. And I am so, so excited for people to get to read it because people who have had the advanced copy, it's been really exciting to hear the positive reviews and I and the people who just... It, 
it gives people the same feeling as Quist of shows you what what's possible. And I I just can't wait for people to get their hands on it. Well, we should tell people what will people find when they pick up Queer There and Everywhere. They will find uh, the stories of 23 incredible people from queer history um, from the 200s through the 2000s. And they cover every corner of the queer spectrum. Um, And they come from several different countries and identities. And their stories, some of them are going to be important to the queer rights movement specifically. So Sylvia Rivera, Harvey Milk, and a lot are more going to be just people who are important to the world and happen to be queer. So the inventor of the computer or Joan of Arc is in there. Yeah. This tennis player, Renee Richards. And then people that just kind of, they help tell the story of their time and what life was like for queer people in different times and places. So there's a couple of World War II stories and a U.S. Civil War story. And yeah, a lot. some people are going to be totally, most will be unknown names to many people, but there are a few names in there like Abraham Lincoln that everyone will know and be interested to find out the queer side of. Now, I hope I'm not outing you with my next question. I'm a little bit nervous. I'm telling you that in advance. I'm a little bit nervous. So I'm holding in my hand the uncorrected proof of queer there and everywhere. I feel like you already know where I'm going with this. It says here on the cover, 22 people who changed the world. What happened in between what I'm holding in my hands and what people will get? So (laughs) we actually... The amount of people in there didn't change. We realized one of the chapters, the 22 chapters, is about two people. I love this. Um, Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon. um, It's about a couple. So it's actually 23 people, even though it's 22 profile chapters. So it took us like months into it. And then my editor just one day was like, isn't it actually 23? And I was like, yeah. And so we had to change the cover design and all kinds of stuff when we made that realization. But it wasn't um, an an extra person being added. It was just our own correction. In my head, there was a meeting with two different factions. There was the 22ers and the 23ers, (laughs) and there was some sort of dance-off, and ultimately the 23ers won. That's what happened in my head. Well, the true story is closer to... I propose the book be about five people who changed the world. And then that changed into 10 and that changed into 15. And then people were still being added in the last days before the deadline. And it just ballooned into 23. Yeah. Let's just talk about that phrase, changed the world. What criteria do you use to determine that? Because I would imagine there were a ton of people. You could have done more than 20, 22 or 23. Oh, definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. There were over 100 people on my list of possibilities. And they changed the world. I use the same criteria that I use for the Quist app of, you know, did this impact the world at a level of importance beyond their time, really? So, you know, some of the people that aren't in there, the composer of Swan Lake was gay. Um, The painter of the Sistine Chapel was gay. These these impacted the world, and 
I think any contributions to culture where obviously we have a lot covered on like the Broadway side and that kind of thing, like your welcome world for all of the arcs. But then there's also people um, who change the world for queer people. So the first person to undergo surgery for gender confirmation, the first person to, I mean, people who were present at the Stonewall riots, like these moments that changed the, the way the world was going to be for all of us in the community. I mean, some, there's a baseball player who invented the high five in here and just all kinds of things like that. And we go up through um, George Decay, but it starts with a, a Roman emperor. So there are a lot of leaders. So like, queens well we have a queen and we also have a drag queen there you go (laughs) yeah (laughs) so yeah people who maybe like brought peace to their land and that kind of changed the world and then people who changed the world because they were the first to represent their community on tv or something like that nice I was intrigued that there on Amazon, where everyone can go pick it up, that the different categories it's listed in, subsections of the books category, right there in teens as a target demographic. And as I was reading through the book and enjoying it immensely, I would imagine it was difficult for you to pick a target audience because everybody should be picking this up. Definitely. Well, I was approached by HarperCollins Children's to write um, an LGBT history book for teens specifically. And so Young Adults is who was in mind with writing this book. But we call it a crossover because it is just fun for everyone to read. All that the YA label means is that, I mean, for me, it just means that it's fun. It's a for fun book, not a for school book for teens. And I love reading YA. I know a lot oh, yeah. of other adults who do. It just, it means there's more emotion and that it's an easier read, kind of. So, as you know, the tone of the book is very kind of casual, almost, of saying, Frida and her boyfriend, we're going to go hook up, and it'll say hook up, and it things that you wouldn't normally see in a historical biography. Um, and that was the hardest part, really, was translating all of these dry facts from history books into a story that hooks you. Love it. I absolutely love it. So we have this launch date just a couple days away, May 23rd. What's the party going to be like? My mom is making rainbow cookies. I love it. For the launch party. <laughs> um, we are celebrating with a reading at a local bookstore here in Connecticut, RJ Julia. But um, I'm doing a New York launch Um, at the Bureau of General Services Queer Division inside the LGBT Center in Greenwich Village um, on May 25th. And then I'm doing a Boston launch on May 27th at Porter Square Books. And I have just months, really, of library and bookstore and conference and literary festival events lined up through, right now I'm booking in September. Amazing. Um, Yeah, so it's going to be a constant party all the time. 
And by the way, we need to get on, I feel like this is, you know, the most important thing you have going on right now to change the image on your website to include a baby and not just the two cats. I know. <laughs> I know. Um, I, we, I tried like contacting the artist who did the little cartoon of me and my wife and our cat. And, um, he, I, I haven't been able to get in touch, but yeah, we need to have a little family portrait done, okay. but I think we won't be able to get the cats in it because three cats and it, that's why there needed to be a little cartoon instead of a photo because you can't get them to sit still. I feel confident it's not the most important thing going on right now, but I also felt like it was on your radar. Yeah, it is. It is. I I want a picture. Now that I just got the final book, I want a picture of my baby holding it oh. and on the, the three of us, me, my baby, and my book baby. So amazing. So amazing. All right. Everyone's going to go pick this up. They're going to give it to their friends. As, as, a, as a mother, as a cat owner, as a wife, as a, a gay person in this world, give us that final pitch of why is this so important that we pick this up? It's so important not only that we not forget these people that have given us so much, but that we take lessons from how they, their activism or them living us out help to change the world so that we can change the world that we're living in right now to be even more, um, to be more accepting. And I think each of these people, they were just living a regular life and doing what they loved. And I think when you see, when you see what's possible from just doing that, it, it can change your life. There it is. There it is. Listeners, this is what we need you to do. You can stroll on over to sarahprager.com, S-A-R-A-H-P-R-A-G-E-R.com, and learn all about Sarah and the incredible things that she's doing. You can, of course, go to wherever you get your apps and download the Quist app, because I'm telling you, it will give you a sense of history every single day. I find it to be incredibly, incredibly empowering, and you can start so many conversations with people about things that maybe you didn't know about and things they definitely didn't know about. And of course, go to wherever fine books are sold, be it harpercollins.com or Amazon or Barnes Noble, anywhere, and pick up a copy of Queer There and Everywhere, 23 People Who Changed the World. It launches the same day, by the way, this forever bonds us, your book, your, your debut book, my debut book, the same day, May 23rd. Go pick up Sarah's book, Queer There and Everywhere, 23 People Who Changed the World. So excited. Sarah, I cannot wait to see what comes next from you. Thank you so, so much. I'm so excited that our books are twins.
a ton of time left on this week's episode, so let me throw a few of the latest LGBTQ news stories out at you. A bill to protect same-sex couples under the state's domestic abuse laws has advanced in the state of Louisiana. House Bill 27 passed at Louisiana's Senate Judiciary Committee meeting unanimously this week. The bill would amend state law to protect same-sex couples with legal protection in cases of domestic abuse. Sponsored by Representative Patrick Connick, the bill would apply to any couple in a sexual or intimate relationship. This means state law would still cover married and straight couples, but would also extend state law to protect same-sex couples. It also protects those who have been in relationships in the past. Connick says all victims of domestic abuse should be covered by state law. He said this, quote, everyone has a right to be protected from violence. Everyone has a right to be protected from violence. This is what we need. We need these little advances, which is quite a big advance, particularly in the great state of Louisiana. But these advances put us on par with all of our brothers and sisters in this great country of ours. So that's what's happening in Louisiana. In Nevada, a bill which would allow transgender people to legally change names without declaring it in a newspaper has passed in Nevada's assembly. The bill had already passed in the Senate with a unanimous vote and has now passed in the assembly. It will now go to Governor Brian Sandoval for his signature, Senate Bill 110 will remove the requirement for the dead name and new legal name to be published in a newspaper. Who knew that that was a requirement? Apparently you had to publish both your dead name and your new legal name in the newspaper if the reason is to confirm the gender identity of an individual. They no longer have to do that. Supporters of the bill called the requirement to publish the old and new names in a newspaper outdated. They also said it was an invasion of privacy. Brooke Malath of Reno said this at a February hearing, quote, All transgender people have an increased risk of being the victim of violence and discrimination when their identities are are exposed and are faced with a personal safety risk with the publication of a name change. It is a matter of life and death to protect ourselves. Another change in our laws that makes our communities safer. Love that. Not so much the same news in Texas. Not at all the same tenor of those last two stories in Louisiana and Nevada. The governor of Texas has said that passing a bill to stop transgender people using public bathrooms, it's his top priority. Yep, everything else going on in society. Everything. Education, the economy, everything. His top priority, passing a bill to stop transgender people from using public bathrooms. Republican Governor Greg Abbott has been a leading voice in backing a frenzy of anti-LGBT legislation right there in Texas after the Trump administration ended Obama-era legal resistance from the federal government against discriminatory state laws in North Carolina. Due to the unique political system in Texas, the state legislature only actually meets once every two years for a maximum of 140 days. The 2017 session, which began in January, is now nearing its end, putting a time limit on efforts to pass more anti-LGBT legislation. So they only meet every two years for a maximum of 140 days, 
And with everything going on in that ginormous state, this is what they're focused on. As the clock runs down, Governor Abbott has urged lawmakers to pass anti-trans law Senate Bill 6. Speaking to the Dallas Morning News, he cited it as one of his priorities for the remainder of the session alongside a bill that would cut taxes for homeowners. Those are his priorities. A bill that would cut taxes for homeowners. Oh, and also the bill that would prevent trans people from using the bathroom. He said this, quote, We are on a pathway where those priorities can be addressed during the regular session. It's just a matter of getting everybody on the same page. Those are the priorities of people you guys elected. Not good. Not good at all. A trans man has been blocked from a seat on the Alaska Human Rights Commission by the state's legislature. Drew Phoenix, a trans man, was blocked from a seat on the commission following a vote in the legislature on the nominations by Governor Bill Walker. Out of all of the nominees for boards, commissions, and administration posts, Phoenix was the only one to be voted down. Those opposed to Phoenix's nomination said he was too political for the post. According to Senator John Coghill, a Republican, he has no problem with Phoenix being an advocate for trans rights, quote, until you get on that commission, and then what you want to do is you want to look at protecting all rights. Phoenix said he was, quote, incredibly upset and disheartened by the vote when interviewed by NBC. Phoenix said this, quote, I just find it so ironic that somebody like myself, with so much years experience personally and professional working on behalf of human rights, that they would not confirm me to the Commission on Human Rights. Yeah. So apparently it's being seen as mutually exclusive to advocate for trans rights and advocate for all rights. No, that's actually not mutually exclusive. And at no point did Phoenix say he would not advocate for all rights. He actually was asked by a Senate committee in the state whether he had worked as an advocate for LGBT rights. He said he was asked that, whether he wanted to use the position on the commission to further that cause. In response, he said that he would do so only if the commission was aiming for that and the only person to be voted down. And finally, gosh, we're jumping state to state, but let's go back to Nevada. A lot of good stuff happening in Nevada, and this is a big one. The Nevada governor has signed a bill into law which protects LGBTQ young people from harmful gay conversion therapy. Yay! Senator David Parks of Las Vegas introduced the bill to outlaw the widely condemned practice. Senate Bill 201 will concern psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, nurses, family therapists, and other clinical counselors. The bill stops short of banning religious counselors like pastors from attempting to cure the sexual orientation or gender identity of a person, but it still does quite a bit. Those opposed to the bill argued that adults and the parents of gay children should be allowed to opt into the practice if they so wish. But along the lines of many major medical bodies, Senator Parks argued that the practice can be harmful to recipients. The senator said this, quote, I want to thank my colleagues in the Senate and the Assembly for their bipartisan support of Senate Bill 201. Conversion therapy is a dangerous, discredited practice that has been shown to cause anxiety, depression, substance abuse, and suicide among LGBTQ youth. By enacting this ban, Nevada will join eight other states and the District of Columbia in taking a strong stand to protect young people from psychological and physical abuse. So we are up to nine states. We still have 41 more to go to outlaw this very harmful practice. 
Folks, we have work to do. Our thanks, our thanks to the wonderful Ambassador Rufus Gifford and the incredible work he is doing to use his voice in his own way to make a difference, and to Sarah Prager. Go pick up her book, Queer There and Everywhere. And hey, it's being released the same day as my book. Seriously, what am I doing here? The Adventures of a Wandering and Wandering Gay Jew. Go pick them up on Amazon right this very second. In the meantime, go get out there. Go use your voice the way you know how to use it to make Make a difference for our LGBTQ brothers and sisters, for all of our allies out there. And while you're out there using your voice, while you're out there making a difference, please remember, why be gay when you can be so gay?